Working people spend their lives doing what they are supposed to do and not getting rewarded. That should be at the center of our political conversation. You know, the real job creation is the small business. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that's been the engine for generations. And by holding the largest employers to the highest standard, we tilt the economic playing field back towards smaller companies and mid-sized companies and make it easier for them to compete and grow. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. It's like Econ 101 without all the BS. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, one of the things which we have the freedom to do in this office, which Mm -hmm. I love, is uh, examine issues, examine problems, and then say, hey, let's come up with a brand new idea on on how to deal with it. For better or worse, we do do that. We do do that. (laughs) And worst thing that happens is it's no good. But sometimes we hit on something which seems seems like a good idea. And uh, last December, you wrote a piece for Democracy Journal on an idea we call progressive labor standards. That's right. Explain a little bit what's the problem we're trying to address and uh, what progressive labor standards actually are. Okay, progressive labor standards is a framework for implementing any kind of labor standard. Right. Could but be look, minimum wage, yeah, vacation time, anything, paid whatever sick it leave, is, whatever. Whatever it is, but just imagine the minimum wage because that's quite simple. And rather than implementing that policy by geography... Or, or just everybody pays the same minimum that's wage. Right. We would implement it based, but tiered, imagine a three-tier system, based on the size of the company. Uh, and progressive labor standards is an acknowledgement that the topography of the economy actually isn't geography. It's based on the size of the enterprises in the geography. And, and the market power that they have. Exactly. The idea came out of a bunch of interactions that I had when you know we, we sort of challenged ourselves in the office to send me out into the community to talk to ordinary people about economic policy because it's really easy to persuade yourself in a small office like ours, or frankly, talking to the sort of elite policymakers and politicians that we surround ourselves with, that your ideas are smart and they make sense to people and people should just do what you wanted to do. And, you know, when we said, you know, we should really just go out and tell people about these things and get their perspective and feedback. And so I went out and talked to a whole bunch of groups, rotary clubs and things like that about economic policy. And out of that experience emerged some new ideas. And one of the things that was really striking about talking, uh, for instance, to small business people about political economy issues is that they were mostly very supportive of the idea that you know people should be paid enough to but get by they, without they food. wanted to pay they their wanted they absolutely more. wanted to most but of them most of them <laughs> yeah. I mean but you know in general these are good people who want the best for their community and frankly the best for their workers but they are constrained by the dynamics of the market and the more you talk to them the more you realize that they think that higher labor standards for instance is the enemy of small business when in fact 
the enemy of small business is big business. Right. <laughs> and, and the exploitive practices that the biggest businesses in America now employ. Those discussions got us thinking and doing research. And we learned a bunch of things through that research, didn't we? We, we learned, for instance, that in non-urban areas, in rural areas, most people actually don't work for small businesses. They work for giant companies. Right. Because there's so much less economic diversity in yes. these rural areas and small towns that a larger percentage of the population is working for giant companies than in a city like Seattle, exactly. which has giant companies. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, if you go to a small town, it's not, you know, some independent department store, it's Walmart. Right. And it's not an independent gas station, it's Exxon. And it's not a local bank, it's Bank of America. And and it's not a local burger joint, it's McDonald's or Burger King or whatever it is. Those right. are the big employers. And those companies uh, employ the most exploitive labor practices and and have effectively driven all the small businesses out of business and driven down and, and, and wages. Right. Through their monopsony so power. That's right. They drive down wages. There's studies to show that when Walmart moves into a county, uh, wages fall in re retail and fall even further in the grocery segment. That's right. And the other thing our research showed was that you know, this divide between urban and rural, you know, both the political, cultural, economic divide is largely driven by differentials in economic growth rates. And the fact that basically all the action is in the cities, uh, by the way, whether you're in California, where it's all L.A. and San Francisco, or even if you're in a smaller state like Idaho, which is very, very quickly urbanizing. Right. We're even in a red, relatively rural state. They're now having this challenge of the urban rural divide. And so we were like, man, this is really, really important. And the other thing, of course, that has gone wrong with the American economy is monopoly power, monopsony power. The country's economy is now dominated by fewer and fewer giant companies. And that monopsony and monopoly power is bad for workers, it's bad for politics, it's bad for everything. Right. And so essentially to sum this up, we, we have three different types of inequalities that are growing at the same time in this country. There's the inequality that we always hear about, which is that income inequality between individuals that the very rich like you are doing really well mm -hmm. and everybody else not so much. There is what you were explaining, this inequality between businesses, that it's yeah. increasingly difficult for small businesses to increase with these giant, large, Correct. national, multinational companies. And it's actually leading to a uh, decline in small business formation. A and dramatic then, decline. Right. And there's yeah. a third one, uh, inequality, which is really undermining our political cohesion, our social and political cohesion in this country. And that is this growing what the experts call spatial inequality. Correct. This geographic inequality between regions, between red parts of the states and the blue cities, between the blue states and the red states, where there are the, this handful, maybe uh, a dozen or so urban centers that are doing really, really well, mostly on the coasts, and everybody else, not so much. And partially it's because Seattle, we're growing a lot because of Amazon. Amazon's been a curse, but also a blessing to this city. For sure. But Amazon is sucking wealth out of the rest of the country. Correct. Every small business they put out of 
business, every sale that they're now taking there, a little portion of that is coming back to headquarters here in Amazon, which is helping to pay the high wages at Amazon headquarters. But we are economically colonizing much of the rest of the nation in the same way that Walmart did. Yeah, absolutely. There's another um, addendum I'd like to add, which is that there's now in the press a ton of conversation about monopolies. Amazon is a monopoly. Facebook is a monopoly. All these big companies being challenged. And there's, a, I think, an appropriate amount of conversation about legitimate conversation, serious conversation about breaking those companies up. Right. And I think in many cases we should do that. But progressive labor standards suggests a way to attack this problem, not from the top, but from the bottom. Right. Which is to effectively tilt the economic playing field back towards smaller companies. Right. Back towards small businesses, back towards workers, and back towards rural communities and small towns. Exactly. And, you know, again, another thing that we found in our research, which frankly is both troubling and somewhat surprising, is we used to do all this. Right. 30 or 40 years ago, many of these safeguards were in place that, in fact, we taxed giant chains right. more than local stores. Progressive that, taxes on chain stores. That's right. Many that, states had them. Yes. In many states, large chains were required to pay their workers more than local chains. Right. And this... This was not anti-competitive. It was pro-competitive. It was designed. We we had laws that prevented companies from selling things below cost. Yes. So as to uh, drive their competitors out of business. Yeah. So in some progressive labor standards are kind of like the progressive income tax in that our biggest and wealthiest corporations, those who can afford to be held to higher standards, are held to higher standards on things like the minimum wage and the overtime threshold. Yeah. But you know what, Nick? What do we know about how things work in the rest of the country? Almost nothing. That's right. Therefore, we called up Boise Mayor Dave Beter to tell us uh, what it's like to run a city in red state Idaho and to try to pitch him the particulars of uh, this proposal. My name is Dave Beter, and I'm the mayor of the city of Boise, Idaho. We'd like to start by talking about Boise. If you can tell us uh, a little bit about Boise, its economy, and what you see its greatest challenges are. Well, I'm a little uh, partial, as you'd expect. Uh, I'm a Boise native. My mother was also from Boise. Boise is uh, is blessed uh, geographically. We're at the end of the desert where it starts up into the mountains. We're about 100 and, well, we're 153 years old. Originally, we were uh, we were not a mining town, but we were the we provided the the goods and services for the miners, which is actually a better gig than yeah. mining. Yeah, yeah. Seattle because, did that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Seattle did the that mining for itself the is really gold rush. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's where the money uh, is. The mining itself is tough, but the suppliers do pretty well. And uh, we're the state capital. Uh, obviously, Boise State University is home here, and that's. Uh, grown steadily. Uh, we historically had many uh, headquarters of uh, corporations. Albertsons was founded here, Micron Technology. Over the years, we've diversified our economy, become uh, HP also has a division in Boise. Uh, increasingly, we have a lot of tech startups and a lot of tech activity. That's been quite good to us, but a pretty diversified economy 
that uh, helps us uh, sustain in downturns. And now, uh, you know, we have great outdoors, uh, you know, a pretty mild climate, uh, an increasingly diverse population, and, uh, well, a lot of good press uh, nationally and otherwise. But our real challenges are because of that. We have uh, pretty intense growth going on right now and how we deal with that, especially in a state that's red besides our little our little part of the world. That's our biggest challenge. Public transportation without a funding source, wages that, you know, don't keep up with housing and affordable housing challenges that uh, without a lot of tools to deal with that. So that's kind of where we are right now. If we do the right things in the next five to 10 years, we can avoid some of the real, you know, those dynamics of, uh, of too high a cost of housing, you know, and stay a, a livable, you know, socioeconomically diverse city. We've got some ideas that we want to pitch to you. Well, we thought we get the input of a, uh, a medium-sized city. I don't know where, how, yeah. how yeah, medium-sized city mayor. You've been there a long time. You're also familiar with the politics and economics throughout the rest of uh, Idaho, which is fair to characterize as a red state. Uh, a lot of it is very rural. Um, and so, Nick, you uh, cooked up this idea of what we call in the office progressive labor standards. You know, we often think of imposing labor standards by geography, and certainly we have done that around the country. We did it in Washington State. We have a 15, actually now it's a $16 minimum wage in the city of Seattle, but thirteen fifty statewide to account for a lower cost of living, et cetera. But uh, having been through that fight for, well, I, I should say longer than anyone else has because because the whole fight started here. Um, a group of us have you know begun to come to terms with the notion that we may have made a mistake in implementing these things by geography because the true topography of the economy has nothing to do with geography. It has to do with the size of the companies that are in the geography. And so progressive labor standards, a very simple idea, which is to hold the biggest companies to the highest standards. So the largest companies, for example, would be held to a 15 or even a higher minimum wage, $18 an hour, $20 an hour, and medium-sized companies to a $15 minimum wage, and maybe the very, very smallest companies would be held to a even lower minimum wage or some some sliding scale I don't know what it is because the truth is Walmart and McDonald's and Citigroup and Wells Fargo and HP can easily afford to pay people $20 an hour how do we know we can simply look at their P&L statements right it's very easy to see right. that these companies could easily afford to pay their workers enough to get by without food stamps, in fact, to pay their workers enough to lead stable, secure, and dignified lives. And by holding the largest employers to the highest standard, we tilt the economic playing field back towards smaller companies and mid-sized companies and make it easier for them to compete and grow. And one could imagine, and particularly in a state like Idaho, doing something like this, because even in the smallest town in Idaho, the, the Walmart can afford to pay 20 bucks. <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, they can. And if they did, and if all those people working for Walmart could have, could, were paid that, well, those people would have uh, 
have enough money to spend on the small businesses in the town that uh, they lived in, and that would be good for everybody. We're beginning to socialize this idea as a way to account both for geographic inequality, which we have a big challenge around in this country. Even in Idaho, a relatively rural state, you have that same challenge, right? Absolutely. There's way more affluence in Boise than there is in the in the smaller areas of Idaho, and that's creating a divide even in a place like Idaho. What's kind of a misnomer is that we're a rural state. Increasingly, we're an urban state. Right. Because agriculture needs so fewer workers that the urban centers around the state uh, are growing. All of them are growing all around the state. Even in a state like Idaho, uh, the urban dynamics are really important. Right. A lot more jobs in processing potatoes than in growing them. Yes, yes exactly right. That's yeah. a great example. And Chobani has their largest facility in the world in Idaho. Right. Huh. Yeah, but I mean, you know, as we look at the population of Idaho, I mean, you've got about 700,000 people in the uh, in the Boise metro, and there's only 1.7 million. That's half the people in Idaho. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that, a, a bigger concentration than the Seattle metro compared yeah. to that. Yeah. And one of the things that we wanted to chat with you about, I mean, you just get your perspective on is, you know, this urban-rural divide uh, is a terrible problem in American politics and culture today. And, uh, you know, from our point of view, one of the biggest parts of it is the prosperity divide that is very hard to be economically secure and prosperous in these smaller places as urbanization, you know, unfolds at the rate in which it's currently unfolding. And and this progressive labor standards idea, I guess, was part of our hope in beginning to you know, socialize is, is is to get more prosperity flowing in those non-urban areas where where those big companies that tend to dominate the economies of these tiny towns actually, you know, we ensure that they make people affluent, not affluent, but at least, you know, stable right, and secure. Right. You're on to something important in that, boy, I, I don't want to go too far in the weeds, but yeah. <laughs> uh, the number, I didn't know this until recently, but there's a group called the Kaufman Foundation, and they are the best entrepreneurial new business nonprofit in the country. And they got us on to the fact that for decades, the number of new businesses started in America was was relatively consistent. You know, there were swings in the economy, but the number of, of new businesses started remained pretty constant until the downturn. You know, there's this notion that people took more risk after they were downsized and lost their jobs in the downturn, and it's just not true. We haven't seen, both locally here and across the country, the number of new businesses started has not kept up, which makes the bigger companies even stronger. They got more political influence, and the you know the real job creation is the is the small business, mm-hmm. right? That's been the you know churning out jobs in America because a chunk of those small businesses become big. You know, that's been the, the engine for for generations. From a policy standpoint, it's really tough. But to favor those companies compared to the legacy corporations that have even more influence is the right policy to do. Now, how that works out into it is is tough. But we're we're on to that and doing whatever we can locally to try to help that because that, you know, that engine of new business and jobs 
is not cranking like it used to. Uh, and we all have a, an interest in, in seeing that happen. One of the interesting things uh, that happened for us as we began to explore this issue was that we discovered that this is actually what we used to do in this country. Yes. That, in fact, we used to tilt the economic playing right. field towards smaller businesses. Well, we, we taxed chain stores yeah, yeah. higher than the, we taxed uh, local businesses. Yeah. yeah, we used to do all these things in America to make it easier to be a local business or a small business than a giant multinational corporation. And over 30 or 40 years, we just forgot all of those lessons and all of those rules and structures were pushed aside to enable a few giant corporations to get ever bigger. Obviously, there are some people in America who benefited hell of a lot from that. Yeah, you're, you're one of them <laughs> yeah, sitting, maybe. sitting across uh, the table from me. But everybody else didn't. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we went wrong, basically. Well, that's what this Kaufman group points out. I mean, they're capitalists to their toes. Yeah. And entrepreneurial, I mean, it's anti-capitalist in a sense. It really is. Because the newer ideas and the real engine of, of innovation and job creation is that the smaller company level. And we're, I mean, like I said, they pointed that out that it hasn't come back since the downturn. And then it gets worse because, and this is their words, the legacy corporations have even more authority. It sounds good in a way because, you know, we have prosperity and we have growth, but underneath it is this a real concern that we're just not generating these, these jobs and new companies that eventually lead to bigger companies and, you know, out a little ways, uh, we're in trouble. So, I mean, you're, you're on to it. Can I uh, ask you a political question? Sure. You are a, I think it's officially a nonpartisan position, but you're, you're a Democrat, right? Self-described Democrat. I am. I was in the legislature before I ran for mayor. And- okay. So you are a Democrat in a, a blue city, slightly blue city, bluish tinge city in a deep red state. You know, I, I know how strong that urban-rural divide is, both politically and culturally. Any chance of persuading folks outside of Boise that this sort of progressive labor standards approach might be good for them and good for the rest of the state? Well, the, the definition of an optimist is being a Democrat in the state of Idaho. So, uh, of course, there's a chance. <laughs> Uh, of course, there's a chance to convince them. Uh, and I need to live a, a nice, long life so I can see that happen. <laughs> but I do believe that is starting. We're starting to see the beginnings of that. That's great. You know, people understanding, why do I keep voting for those people that don't understand my life, that don't support policies that help me? You got to think these dynamics will change. By 60%, we voted for Medicaid expansion initiative in the state of Idaho, 60%. But then they voted for the people that wouldn't <laughs> do that through right. the legislature. Right, right. You got to hope, and I do have hope, that eventually they'll see the... The disconnect. How the disconnect there. And that, that, that makes me think, well, you know, it's coming back around where people, well, that disconnect will become apparent. You know, I'm not going to say we're going to be blue you know, real soon, but then, then we get competitive. Then we can start to win some you know, and make the arguments that people start to, to listen to and get traction. Uh, we've got one final question for you. We like to ask all our guests, why do you do what you do? Oh, because I love it. 
begin to wake up every day and try to make my hometown a better city. And they pay me for that. That's really good fortune. So uh, short of playing fullback for the Green Bay Packers, it's the best job I could ever imagine. <laughs> it's, it's just like me, Nick. Yeah. I, I wake up every day and you pay me to uh, yeah, insult me. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I do mean that. That doesn't mean it's not a pain, you know, it's not a pain yeah. for a chunk of the time, especially campaign time. But that's a good fortune. Yeah, and the thing about being a mayor of Boise is you probably have a longer career than a fullback for the uh, Green Bay Packers. So. <laughs> exactly, a lot longer. Doesn't take near as well, but it is, yeah. it is longevity's part of it. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Likewise. And best of luck Likewise. out there. It was great. Yeah, thank you, and you guys too. Keep at it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So it was interesting, Nick, uh, that uh, Mayor Beter had been talking about data he got from the Kaufman Foundation, which um, we actually cite in our progressive labor standards piece talking yeah. about uh, the startup rate, which, by the way, is at a 40-year low. According to the Kaufman Foundation, drawing from U.S. Census data, the, the percentage of new businesses that are less than a year old as a percentage of all the businesses in the country is actually 44% lower yeah. uh, than it was um, in the pre-trickle-down era. Right. Uh, and uh, the, the Brookings Institute actually confirms that there are more businesses dying each year than are being created. Yeah, and this this is the inevitable consequence of unfettered, uh, you know, basically an unfettered economic system leading to increasing levels of corporate concentration. Right, but it's also, yeah. it, it's, it's actually really bad for the economy. Republicans yeah. always talk about small businesses as yeah. being the job creators and the source of all this innovation, and historically, that's true. Yeah. So if you have less small business creation in this country, right. you're getting less innovation, and you're getting less job creation, and that means Correct. lower wages and uh, um, worse products and services than yeah. you otherwise would have. And and that market concentration, I mean, when you look at it, it's just, it, it's amazing when you actually look at the numbers. And we all know this intuitively, but when you look at the numbers in multiple product categories, today, 74% of ebooks are sold by Amazon, 75% of candy is sold by Hershey or Mars. 86% of basketball shoes are sold by Nike. Uh, in retail, 69% of the office supply market is controlled by two companies, Office yeah. Depot and Staples. 90% of home improvement is Lowe's or Home Depot. And an astounding 99% of the drugstore market is now dominated by just three companies, CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid. And I know you and I were kind of old, but I remember when there were low Local, locally owned pharmacies yeah, on the sure. corner, uh, in not just giant chain stores. That's right. And the fact that we don't have that stuff anymore is an artifact of just forgetting about the value of small and medium-sized firms. And it's this problem is even more acute in non-urban areas, right. right? Where it has become increasingly, essentially impossible to open up a small business in one of these markets because they are so dominated by these giant players. Right. There's no way they can compete right. Right. with a giant buyer yeah. like Walmart. Yeah, 
Exactly. And so, you know, in the interest of efficiency or theoretically lower prices, we have eviscerated the most important parts of our economy, which were, you know, which frankly was small and medium-sized right. businesses. So we're, so we're essentially allowing the big capitalists to monopolize capitalism. Yes, as and and that, yeah. that can't be good for the country. So, right. so uh, uh, we talked to Mayor Beter. Yeah. Uh, he seemed to think a lot of these ideas would be a good idea for Boise and for Idaho in general. Uh, but of course, he's in this red state where it's tough to get things through that legislator. What do you say at the national level? Where do you think the chances are we could get movement on this well, idea? I, you there? know, I do think I do think that progressive labor standards should be a harmonizing principle for Democrats and for people who care about uh, a more inclusive economy. And I think that if Democrats win in 2020, I think that this idea is something that we may be able to get traction around. There are people who understand the lay of the land better than me, including our next guest, E.J. Dion, who is one of the most insightful commentators on uh, politics and culture in America. And we're excited to have him on and to talk about this more. My name is E.J. Dion. I write a column for the Washington Post. I teach at Georgetown and Harvard and at the Brookings Institution. Um, I am a fan of Nick Hanauer and all that he does, so I am very happy to be here, and, uh, and David, too. And I have a book coming out in um, uh, February. The pub date is the day after the Iowa caucuses, and the book is called Code Red, how progressives and moderates can unite to save our country. We wanted to talk about progressive labor standards with you, which is this very simple idea we've had to impose labor standards, not by geography, but essentially by company size, holding the largest institutions to the highest standards. But what we wanted to do was try to set, uh, uh, to, to try to contextualize our conversation with you, because you, you have been a both a witness, uh, an observer, and a commentator on the ch these changing dynamics for, and I don't want to pin you down, but for a very long time. How, like, you've been at this for a long time, haven't you? Uh, well, it's nice of you to say that. I, I guess that means I'm getting old. Uh, but uh, these issues, uh, these issues have engaged me for uh, pretty much all uh, my adult life. I mean, going all the way back to a doctoral dissertation I wrote on the Labor Party and the Democratic Party in the uh, from the 50s to the 80s on how we ended up with Thatcher and Reagan and what role the uh, work, working class politics played in that. So yes, these have been uh, issues that have concerned me. And I also say I grew up in an old union factory town called Fall River, Massachusetts, which has sort of been on the wrong end of the economy a lot, even since the Great Depression. And I always like to say that probably 80 percent of what I believe comes from growing up in Fall River and feeling that working people who uh, you know spend their lives doing what they are supposed to do and not getting rewarded, that should be at the center of our political conversation. Let's just start the conversation, and you can agree or disagree with my observation, which is that in my lifetime, this is the first political cycle where the basic consensus from the Democrats running for president 
is that we should really actually do something about some of these problems. <laughs> I'd say it's the first election uh, in my adult life where the Democratic Party seems to be shifting left. Yeah. So do you agree with that? Yeah, I argue in my book um, that what we are seeing is the death of the Reagan economic consensus, which really dominated politics from um, Reagan's election to 2008. After the great crash, Reaganite economic ideas came under scrutiny, under question. Uh, but even President Obama felt he needed to operate to some degree within that consensus. And I think that progressives and moderates alike should celebrate the successes of both the Clinton and Obama years, and there were some real successes, but also acknowledge that they left some problems unsolved because they were so constrained by this consensus. And I think starting in 2016, and definitely now, you are seeing people throw off the shackles yes. of that consensus. And again, if I can just go back to healthcare, think about how different this debate is already from the debate that we had over Obamacare. President Obama was said to be a socialist because he wanted uh, subsidies for private health insurance, you know, with a little, with some beefed up Medicaid. There was nothing radical about President Obama's health care plan. Now, the range of debate is essentially between Medicare for all and Pete Buttigieg's Medicare for all who want it. Uh, Joe Biden's health care plan is far more progressive than the original Obama plan was. Uh, and I think that shows that there is much more room here. Similarly, the demand for free college, which, by the way, isn't as radical as it looked. If you go back 40 years, state universities were very close to free for a lot of people. Uh, and wherever we end up there, you know, it goes from free college to President Obama's proposals for two-year free community college. Wherever you end up, there is a, a consensus that both college and other forms of post-secondary training, so people can get uh, decent jobs, should be vastly expanded. And then to go to your proposal, there are many, many more people now talking about worker rights and regulatory actions that would help workers than we're doing so four, eight, 12 years ago. We know where the American people are. What about D.C.? I mean, is it possible to actually enact any of this reforms given the, you know, the structure of the U.S. Senate? Maybe, maybe the Democrats win the White House and the House, and maybe, maybe, maybe in 2020 we win the Senate, but it, it doesn't look like we can hold the Senate for a generation or more, given the, the partisan divide in the country. Can anything liberal, progressive, constructive actually get done in D.C. anymore? I'm glad you raised the Senate, uh, which is the least. I think this is an accurate statement. If anybody out there want, wants to challenge it, please let me know, because I want to hear the argument. I think the United States Senate is the least Democratic uh, small d, Democratic elected body in any democracy in the world. The ratio between the smallest state and the biggest state is uh, over 70 to 1 in population. By the way, when the republic was founded, the ratio between the smallest and biggest state was 13 to 1. Wow. By 2040, 
70% of us will live in 15 states, which means 70% of us will have 30 senators out of 100. If you look at bill after bill, uh, especially when the filibuster is on, uh, bills that pass with votes from senators representing 60% or more of the American population fail. Guns is a good example. Gun reform is a good example of that. The problem is the Constitution makes it exceedingly difficult, uh, virtually impossible to change the United States Senate, which would be at the top of my list uh, of reforms. And it's very unlikely you could get a constitutional amendment through because the smaller states would have enough clout to block it. So this is a huge problem. This points to two things. One is uh, you know, there have been talk of splitting states. Uh, there has been talk of letting some other entities have representation who don't. Certainly, D.C. should have it, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands. That would equalize things a little bit. But I think that for the time being, given this very undemocratic structure, uh, progressives have to try to figure out how to gain a foothold again in some of the smaller, more rural states. You know, it's worth noting that the two Dakotas not so long ago had four Democratic senators. Now they have four Republican uh, senators so that I don't see any way around. Uh, you know, we've got to live with this very undemocratic body for a while. Um, and so I think progressives really need to think about policies that lift up rural areas and small towns and to challenge uh, conservatives and Republicans right at their base, because the Senate is an enormous problem for those who are looking for progress and change. Right. So that was one of the inspirations for our progressive labor standards proposal, which was to address this growing spatial inequality between thriving cities like Seattle and much of rural America and addressing some of the very real problems in the agricultural sector where there's this huge monopsony power that is driving farmers into bankruptcy because they really only have one or two buyers for their hogs or their chickens or their wheat, their corn, etc. But, you know, that is addressing an economic problem. Is it possible to create today another farm labor alliance purely on economic issues when the the cultural divide seems to be so stark that people are willing to vote against their own economic issues and well for whatever their personal <laughs> reasons are whether it's racism or anger uh, or fear do you see any hope in uh, a addressing that divide i think a lot of people have lost faith over time in government's capacity to succeed. And some of that's the result of right-wing propaganda, but some of that is a sense of particular government failure. So I actually think reforming government and uh, persuading Americans that yes, actually, not only does this thing often work better than they realize, but actually progressives are committed to making it work much better than it has in the past. And then the third thought I will offer, you will certainly agree with, because I'm going to read directly from the Democracy Journal piece about your idea. And this is one of my favorite sentences in your piece, 
where you're talking about progressive labor standards that really hit bigger companies harder, that put regulations up there. Your sentence reads, by harmonizing the interests of workers with the interests of small business and farmers, progressive labor standards enable Democrats to build a majoritarian coalition strong enough to combat the dangerously growing political power of our nation's largest monopolist. Um, and I really like this idea of reestablishing links with, uh, with small business. Um, my own feeling, and I think you guys agree with this, is that you rarely get reform in America without support from some part of the business community. Correct. And when the business community unites as one unit against something, they have a lot of power to stop things. Uh, but when progressives find support from pieces of the business community, and you know, by the way, there are a lot of business people out there who would rather pay their people more, um, who actually do care about their employees, and if they do care about their employees too much, they're worried that competitive pressures will put them out of business. So let's sort of favor, you know, high-end businesses that seek to succeed on the basis of helping their workers. And in your proposal, let's make sure that these regulations start with bigger businesses. Uh, anyway, I, I just appreciated that sentence very much because when we think about policy ideas, we can't just think this is good policy. We also have to think of the politics that underlies the policy and allows it to succeed. You know, one of the things that we have to remind small business people is that the enemy of small business isn't higher labor standards or government regulation. The enemy of small business is big business <laughs> <laughs> and the exploitive practices and the right. scale advantages, you know, and all of that that right. has made it almost impossible. If, to if you're a small, small shopkeeper, yeah, yeah. Your, your enemy is yeah. Walmart and Amazon. Yeah, not 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 uh, the minimum wage. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we really enjoyed talking to you. I know our time is up, but we want to ask you one last question, uh, which we do with all of our guests. Why do you do this work? I grew up in a um, in a very political household where we talked about it. It was actually in many ways a conservative household, but I had parents who were very, very engaged in community work of various kinds. My mom was a teacher and a librarian. My dad was a dentist who actually started a free dental clinic in our town in the 1930s. And I have sort of been animated by uh, you know, a series of political impulses, but also I think democracy and engagement is actually fun. Uh, I enjoyed politics from the time I was small and I have loved, you know, I've been teaching now for almost 20 years and I find engaging students not only exciting, but they teach me new things every day. Um, so I feel very, very blessed in what I'm able to do. Well, EJ, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We're really looking forward to your next book. Yeah. Bless you. Thank you. Okay. Talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'll tell you what I really love about this more than anything is that it's a great narrative for actually educating people about the core problems because, yeah. you know, we hear about all this stuff about inequality and we think of it in this narrow sense as right. poor people versus rich people. But in fact, there there's inequality throughout the economy in all of these rich and nuanced ways that are not just pulling people down, but also pulling the economy down with it. Yeah. And so progressive labor standards is one of those things that we're litigating. It teaches people about 
the problems that we face in construct, I think really useful and constructive ways. And just talking to people about it teaches them, I think, about where the economy has gone wrong and how we could work together to fix it in constructive ways. And, and you know, like we didn't talk about this that much, but I love the politics of this idea because what it allows progressives and Democrats to do is drive a wedge between the biggest companies in America and the other 99 and a half percent of them. Right. <laughs> right. right. The, the farmers yeah. and small businesses exactly. and exactly. self-employed. Yes. Because, you know, the, the enemy of small business and medium sized business isn't labor standards or regulation. The enemy of small and medium sized businesses is big business and their exploitive practices and the way in which we have tilted the economic playing field towards big business and away from small business. And I think that's that's bad in all sorts of ways for the economy, for the culture, and for the democracy. And this is a way to begin to push stuff in the in a better direction. And, and by uh, uh, crafting a policy that's designed to uh, both level the playing field for small businesses and level the playing field for uh, rural areas and small communities, it's an opportunity to help rebuild that 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 farmer labor alliance yeah. that uh, used to be part of the New Deal majority. That's right. What really excites me about progressive labor standards is so imagine that you implemented a twenty dollar minimum wage for the largest companies in America, and just close your eyes for a second and imagine for a moment what would happen to all of the small towns in America that are dominated by these huge companies, Walmart and Bank of America and Exxon and McDonald's and so on and so forth, is it instantaneously, the next day, the median wage in these places would double. double. Would, At least more. More than Triple. double in most of these places. <laughs> Triple. Well, yeah, I yeah. mean, seven twenty-five <laughs> yeah. an hour. But, you know, whether to you're making seven twenty-five, but going seven twenty-five to 20 right. is huge. Yeah, unbelievable. And, and what would that do for the local economy? Exactly. And for the small businesses that, of course, would also have to raise their wages, but would where everyone in town would now have so much more money to spend. And, and here's the thing. Of course, McDonald's and Walmart and Exxon and Bank of America would squeal and squawk and say that they're all going to go bankrupt, which is always a lie. Right. Um, they would pay. And all of a sudden, these these communities would be vital and economically uh, secure and stable. And here's the even better news. Let's say Walmart says, well, OK, fine, we're going to leave. Great. Great. I mean, definitely short term inconvenience to have the Walmart leave. But Here's the beautiful thing. Now there's space for a small, you know, for somebody to open up a competing store right. to have and that small or medium-sized business once again in this in this small town. And to be clear, Walmart is not the only way to achieve uh, the efficiencies that you get from economies of scale. There's a long history of cooperative grocery stores right. which are pooling their buying and distribution exactly. powers. There's others way to do it. Maybe it takes little government assistance to get right. this uh, built back up again. Right. Uh, but it doesn't mean we're sacrificing low prices uh, just because uh, maybe there aren't as many Walmarts. Right. Absolutely. Or, or because the Walton family uh, loses a little of their stock value yeah, exactly. and their dividends. Yeah, there's all sorts of ways to skin a cat. And, and we could have a very different kind of economy with, uh, you know, where, where prosperity was more fully distributed, both um, 
uh, up and down the economy, but also geographically too. Right, and that you know, would be a good thing. The the way it used to be. Yes, a little, correct. A little bit. That makes us conservative. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Reactionary. Reactionary. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Okay, we're just a couple of reactionaries here. Yeah. We talk to a lot of uh, left-leaning economists on this show, but next week, for a change of pace, we've reached out to the University of Chicago, and we'll be talking to economist Luigi Zingales about the Democrats' economic platform. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.